Okay, let's crack on, shall we? Um, so, I mean, we'll kind of do the usual. We'll have it kind of in two sessions, a little break in the middle, just the same thing I always say, there are no stupid questions. If at any point, and I really do mean this, if at any point you want something explained again, or we slow down a bit, or we get into something that we haven't got into yet, feel free. If it's completely off-piste, or we're going to get to it later, I'll say we'll talk about it later. But do feel free, honestly, to contribute in any way that you would like to. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about the law. Uh, more specifically, we're going to be talking about, well, more broadly, I suppose, we're talking about the, the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible. You'll notice on the handout, it says, plus Joshua. That's not like, plus my contribution. That's the book of Joshua. Uh, we we kind of did Genesis. We've, we've done Genesis, so we're going to pretend that the Pentateuch is instead uh, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua instead. Um, so looking at those things and looking at what the eschatology in those books is, what it's kind of contributing to our overall eschatology. So I, I really enjoyed uh, last week with us, uh, no not last week, last month, uh, with us looking at kind of Noah's Ark and then the kind of wider themes. We'd spent a lot of time in Abraham. Um, so actually, actually let's just do a little recap. So last times, last things. So we talked, if you remember, about the Abrahamic covenant we talked about, so these are just slides from last time, so there's no context, I realize, but we talked about how God had made Abraham and his family to be like a corporate Adam, and they had a job to be priests to the world. Uh, so God's going to make Abraham into a great nation. How God had promised that all the world, all the families of the earth will be blessed through uh, Abraham's family, so that the telos, the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant is all the world blessed. The world, that, that covenant is not complete until all the world is blessed through Abraham. Um, we, we, we'll talk about this a bit more tonight as well, because I feel like it's an important point to get into, but we talked about the fact that it's not just kind of extrapolating things that aren't there from the text to say that the strip of land that we call Palestine these days which was given to Abraham was only kind of a, a foreshadowing or like a down payment on the full promise that God was giving, which was the whole of creation. So we looked at that um, verse in Romans 4 where Paul says that uh, Abraham was made the heir of the cosmos, of all creation. Uh, that strip of land was just a little uh, shadow, a little picture of it. So part of the Abrahamic covenant is all the world is given to the seed of Abraham and that kings will come from him. So we looked at the second to last chapter of Genesis where Jacob prophesies over his sons and there's this prophecy that a king is going to come from the, land, from the line of Judah. So that's what we did last week. Uh, so, yes, so recap from last week. We looked at the centrality of this creation. That sin is not going to win. The whole world being blessed by Abraham's seed. The receiving of the world as an inheritance. Death being dealt with. Adam's task being fulfilled, and a king coming to whom all the nations will be subject. So that's last week's stuff. So this week we're going to be getting into uh, the book of Exodus. So let me just pray as we get going. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the blessing of uh, digging deep into your word. And Lord, we pray that this wouldn't just be uh, an academic exercise or something that just tickles the mind, but this really would affect the way that we approach you in love and awe and reverence as we see your great story which is yet to be completed that has been going for thousands of years and we rejoice to be part of it. 
So Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand and to see the things you want us to see in your word. Amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to be, as I say, looking at the, the Pentateuch. And what, obviously when we're talking about the eschatology of these things, one way to look at it is just, okay, what specific promises are there in the Pentateuch about the end times? So that's one approach. And that would take us about 15 minutes, to be honest. There's not much. There's, there's a f- three or four lines where it says, in the last days, this will happen. And, well, let's just turn to one of the Numbers 24. Oh, this is going to be quite a Bible-heavy evening, by the way, which I'm, I know is a, is a thing that you should hope for anyway, but particularly tonight. So Numbers 24. I'm just going to make a second point to reinforce something I said last week as well from this. But could someone just read out as loud as they can um, Numbers 24, uh, starting from verse 15 down to verse 19. Would anyone be happy to read that for us? So there we have um, Balaam's prophecy. And notice that he starts it by saying, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So this is a prophecy of something a long way away. And same thing that we saw last week. It's the prophecy that there is a coming king coming who is... Uh, going to crush the nations and rule them, or at least crush the oppressors and rule the nations. Now, do you remember I, I used that, um, but you might not remember, but I, I was explaining that G.K. Beale uses a, a, a symbol or an analogy which I found really helpful where he talks about UFOs coming into planet Earth. So he kind of says, as, you, as the UFOs kind of a light year away maybe, they might say, okay, well, there's a little green blob that's on the radar. And then as they get closer, they go, oh, it's, a, it's green and it's blue. And as they get closer, they start to see the waves and the sea and the trees and things start to come clearer and clearer and clearer. And then eventually they get to cities and peoples and faces and so on and so forth. And it's as as though what they said when they were ages away, there's a small blue green blob over there. That's a true statement. But the closer you get to that green blue blob, the more the detail starts to come out. So this is a passage that G.K. Beale uses um, to form that analogy, that the whole thing of Balaam saying, I can't see much because it's far off, but all I can see is that there is a king coming who will crush the nations or crush the oppressors. So that's one of the few kind of eschatological promises, a thing that looks to the end times in Numbers, uh, in the Pentateuch. Uh, Another one, if we turn to Deuteronomy, we're going to be in Deuteronomy quite a lot tonight. But Deuteronomy 18, so Deuteronomy 18 from 14 to the end of the chapter, if someone else would be up for reading that in another loud voice. Thank you, Andrew. So again, we have a passage here about a promise for a coming one, a prophet who's going to be like Moses. You you may not think that this is particularly uh, eschatological, last days-ish, but as, we, as you go through the Old Testament, you find that this promise uh, comes out quite a lot of times, and there's clearly an expectation that this is going to be a big last days thing. I mean, to, to jump way ahead into the New Testament, when Jesus, in Luke 7, raises the, the boy on his funeral bier and uh, does the same things Elisha does, everyone says, this is the prophet that the Lord has promised. So there's this kind of sense of which, oh, finally, the end times prophet has come. So again, this is one of the other few kind of places in the Pentateuch where it specifically says this thing is going to happen. Other than those, there's not a lot to go on. 
in terms of looking for those overt promises about the future and the end. But the point I want us to see tonight is that the whole of the Mosaic Covenant or the Pentateuch, however you want to see it, has a kind of eschatological push to it. So uh, one of the things we talked about in the first session was an oak tree and an acorn. We said that an, an oak tree is like an eschatological acorn. It's like an acorn that has reached its conclusion. Everything that the acorn was setting up for is, is there in the oak tree. So when you look back at the acorn, it looks pretty unimpressive. And, you, you know, is the oak tree really in there? But when you let it do its growth, the tree comes out. So what I want us to see tonight is that the uh, Mosaic Covenant, the, the Pentateuch, is like lots of acorns. And those trees blossom lots of ways. So they might look pretty unimpressive tonight. But as the, the flow of the Bible goes on, those trees grow. So, let's jump in, out of Egypt. So, the first thing we're going to kind of talk about is the Exodus itself, and the point of the Exodus, and the story of the Exodus, and the uh, eschatological uh, bent to it. So, I want to start with a quote that's on your handout. This is from a guy called David Kleins, who wrote a very influential book on the Pentateuch, and I think this is absolutely brilliant. So, he says this. We'll, We'll just break this quote apart afterwards. The theme of the Pentateuch is the partial fulfillment which also implies the partial non-fulfillment of the promise to or blessing of the patriarchs. So let's, let's break that down from end to, to beginning. So the promise of the blessing of the patriarchs, that's, that's what we talked about last time. The, the promises made to Abraham, what we talked about at the beginning. Abraham is going to be multiplied into a great people, that this people are going to bless the world, that they are going to possess the world and so on and so forth, all these promises, and they're going to be settled in their land. So that's the promise. So the Pentateuch is about how that is partially fulfilled. Now, this is where those little brackets that he includes are brilliant, because if it's partially fulfilled, it also implies that it's partially not fulfilled. So when you get to the end of the Pentateuch, what you're not going to find is all the, things made, all the promises made to um, Abraham have kind of reached their conclusion. There's, there's thing, it doesn't, let me put it like this, if you read through the Pentateuch, you don't close the last page of Deuteronomy and say, that was really satisfying. And there's a good reason for that. Because the story is essentially Egypt to the promised land. Except, it's not that, is it? How many things happen in, in between that? Let's just see how, uh, how good our um, Pentateuch knowledge is. So that they're in Egypt, Exodus 1, the people of Israel multiplied and filled Egypt, and Pharaoh doesn't like them, so on and so forth. Right? Now, I say what happens next, and you could say, we could go so small, Moses was born. What's the big major thing in the, next, in the process of them moving to the promised land? So they're in Egypt, then... Okay, so the wilderness is a really important part, which is in the middle somewhere, but it's not the next step. The next step is they come... Sorry, I had a few things at once. So, yeah, out of Egypt. And what's the first thing they do as they leave Egypt? Cross the Red Sea. Yep, so first they cross the Red Sea. And then they go all the way down to Mount Sinai. Yep. And then they start their way back. And Joseph, this is where your answer comes in. Then they wander in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. And then finally they get to the Promised Land. 
And you think, oh, great, well, this is the point where they go in. Well, actually, it's not the point where they go in because then they wander for 40 years, as, well as, you, as we've already said. And so the, the Pentateuch is this kind of funny thing where it, that journey that's supposed to look like that instead looks like this. And I've, I've changed the line to kind of symbolize the fact that it's just a wibbly-wobbly journey. But then, to make it even less satisfying, this is not even how it ends. Because it ends with them on the cusp of entering the promised land. So you close Deuteronomy, and they're still not even there. It's not until you open Joshua that they actually go in and start to take it back, which is another problem, because when Joshua begins, they are in the promised land, but it's occupied. So this story that's kind of, in one sense, supposed to be so simple is not. Now, why am I spending so much time talking about this when we should be talking about eschatology? Good question, I hear you ask everyone. Let's break it down into two sections, the wilderness wandering and then the promised land itself. Because, and the reason I'm doing this, it should send your hand out. I don't actually have a handout, so I can't see. But, uh, yes, so in Hebrews 3, we'll read this in a minute, not quite yet. But in Hebrews 3, verse 7 to 4, verse 11, it uses the picture of the wilderness wandering and the, the promised land as uh, kind of like symbols for the flow of eschatology, right? So let, let's, let's look at the wilderness wandering first. The wilderness wandering was a symbol of God's judgment at their failure to go in and take what God had promised would be theirs in the end, okay? So does anyone remember the names of the two spies? Caleb and Joshua. Okay, and they are tasked to go into the promised land along with all the other spies and to see what's there. Now, Everyone comes back saying broadly the same thing. So the, the broad message is there are giants, there are big cities, this is a really fortified area, this is going to be really tough. Caleb and Joshua don't stand out because they say, nah, this is going to be easy. They don't stand out because they say, no, 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 we've, we've taken on bigger before. They agree with all the other spies, this is a really fortified, dangerous place. The difference is... Anyone? God's promised it's ours, so we're going to take it. Yeah. So, and they're not listened to, so you have this 40 years of wilderness. So it's a failure, ultimately, to trust God's promises because what's in front looks too big a deal. And so they spend time um, just kind of milling about on the borders. So there's that, as I say, there's that line there. Now, when they go in to the promised land... It's not that distinct in terms of um, what it means to be in the promised land and what it means to be in the wilderness because if you think about it, they're in the promised land but they still can't settle, they still can't build cities, they still can't do the things that God has promised that they'll do there. You know, the land flowing with milk and honey, um, multiplying and kind of making the most of the land. They're kind of still, um, what's the word? Nomads. So the occupied promised land and the wilderness wandering are really very similar conceptually. So I think we can kind of simplify the story a little bit to uh, this. I mean, obviously, I've, I've left out the Red Sea and the Sinai bit, but Egypt, and then there's the wilderness slash the occupied promised land bit, and then hopefully into the promised land um, at the end. So that, that wilderness wandering is the time where they're kind of learning what it means to be the outsiders and the, and the foreigners and the outcasts and so on and so forth, uh, and they're being taught by God 
to have faith in him. If you, if you don't believe that you can go in and take the cities, then dwell in the wilderness. Um, now, as I say, we'll see how Hebrews applies this in a minute. But the second side of this that we need to consider is the promised land itself. Now, you probably didn't think that when you came here tonight we were going to be talking about that lovely age-old issue of the Canaanite conquest. You know, the amount of books that have been written on that, I'm not going to assume I can um, solve the kind of moral qualms that exist with that. But I do think it's worth considering a couple of things. One, these are not just innocent people that happen to dwell in the land and God said, well, it's your land, so go and kill them all. Okay, so back in Genesis, God said to Abraham, your family are going to have this land, but not yet. Does anyone remember the clause as to why not yet? Go on, Andy. It's fullness. Yes. So God essentially says, you cannot go in and take the land from that because they have not warranted that kind of judgment yet. Their sin is increasing, and when it gets to a certain point, they will be dealt with. So in a sense, there's like, there's two things that are going on in the Canaanite conquest. God is giving his people the land that is theirs, but God is also using his people as an instrument of his judgment. Where's what? The, the, that is in Genesis 15 or... Yes, Genesis 15. It's after the covenant ceremony. God puts Abraham in asleep and says... Wait, I'll let you find it. So... The Canaanite conquest, as I say, has kind of two purposes to it, but it's, it's God's judgment cleansing that place um, as well as God giving it to his people. So it is, in a sense, I mean, especially for the Amorites' perspective, an eschatological event. The end of their world happens, and it comes at the hand of God. It is, in a sense, a judgment day. Now, Tonight is not about dealing with that moral issue, but all I would say is if we are happy to say that God is allowed to do whatever he wants with his own people, you know, if, if Jesus says not a sparrow can fall without the Father's will, then all we should be seeing that with the Canaanite conquest is the same. God is using his, his people as the instrument of his judgment, though. But we, we can talk about that another time. Um, now, the thing about the promised land is, and we're going to look at two passages on this, and then we'll get to Hebrews. Well, Hebrews is one of the passages. Something really interesting happens in the Bible because the theme of rest comes up since Genesis 2. God creates and then he rests. And when you read uh, Exodus, the first time the word Sabbath appears in the Bible is when Moses speaks to Pharaoh and says, God commands you to let my people go so that they may Sabbath and worship me in the wilderness. So the whole point of the exodus is to give the people rest. And so the promised land kind of becomes a byword for rest. We receive God's rest means we are in the promised land. But as we see, entering the promised land is really not that restful. Even when everything kind of gets sorted out and they're all settled there, you, you know, you finish Joshua and they're all in the land and the tribes are all divided and everything's wonderful. And the Bible just does this wonderful thing of kind of never satisfying you until you get to Jesus. You turn the page and you open Judges and what do you know? It's hardly what you'd call restful. Everything's terrible. And so even though they've got that rest that was promised, let's just look at Psalm 95 and then we'll 
jump into Hebrews afterwards. They've, they've got the, the rest that they were waiting for, and yet it doesn't seem like the rest that was on offer. It doesn't seem like the rest that God entered into onto the seventh, on the seventh day. So Psalm 95, let me just read um, from halfway through verse 7. Psalm 95 says this, Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Uh, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways, so I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. So, this kind of passage starts with today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So something is on offer for you today, and what it's referencing is the first time they didn't enter rest. So there is a promise of rest that is open, even now that you're in the land. Okay, so let's finally jump over to Hebrews. We, we are generally going to kind of follow the Bible's own storyline at its own pace, but every now and again we'll jump into the New Testament and see how these things kind of are brought out. But what I'm going to suggest is we take a few minutes and we read Hebrews 3, verse 7 to 4, 11 in our own time. I'm not expecting you to necessarily understand it and take it all in straight away, but we'll talk about it. But just read it, and then we'll come back. So maybe we'll put aside five minutes, okay? If you need to read it three times, then do it. Okay, let's unpack this a bit. Now, as I say, don't worry if you find it a bit confusing. Hebrews is a notoriously difficult book uh, to follow, so let's do it together. So it starts by quoting that passage we looked at in Psalm 95, and it makes this point that there is an opportunity that God is giving to enter rest. So if you look at verse 13... Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. In other words, as long as this opportunity stands so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Okay. And then in verse 16, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? To whom did God swear they would never enter his rest? Um, and then 4 verse 1, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So the, the picture being used here is kind of like we, the church, are, the, are Israel just on the precipice of the promised land. I mean, I think if we think about, sorry, the, on the TV, that this kind of middle portion of it, is it wilderness or is it kind of occupied promised land, the enemies are there before us? It's kind of that. And so that, that promise is open there before us. Now, what I was saying earlier about the, the Bible not thinking that them going into the land was like the fullness of what God offered. If you look at verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. In other words, what Joshua was doing as he took the people of Israel into Canaan and, and wiped out the Canaanites was not the fullness of what God had on offer for his people. That was an acorn that looked to an oak tree. Okay, just by the way, there's a little pun here in the in the Greek because the word for uh, Joshua and the word for Jesus are the same. So it's, uh, it's for both. It's Jesus, 
So it's like the author of Hebrews is saying, if that Joshua gave them rest, they wouldn't be talking about another, and we wouldn't need our Joshua or our Jesus or whatever. So, um, yeah, so the point there is that it's, it's kind of viewing the church as though that's where we are right now. Now, there is a distinction, obviously, because why are they, why are they wandering in the wilderness? Because of disobedience, right? Failure to trust God. Well, the church isn't, isn't in that kind of wilderness stage because we've, you know, even in the first century kind of done some great act of disobedience. Quite the opposite. Jesus goes into the wilderness and then he comes out in power and we've been given the Holy Spirit. So that's like God's ultimate sign that we're not just kind of in the desert like Israel were. So, and in other places, like we'll get eventually to 1 Corinthians 15, it's very kind of promised land-esque language of the enemies before you, they're being wiped out. So if you ask the question, well, is the church in the wilderness or is the church in the promised land, kind of symbolically speaking, that the answer is kind of, well, well, yes. It's that kind of all being fulfilled and worked out. And, and when we get to probably two sessions time, we'll talk about this again. But there's kind of both at the same time for now. And one is being worked out over the other. One is fading and one is coming in. Now, as I say, we'll talk about that when we talk about uh, the New Testament. Um, I think that's really important to understand. Because if we understand that about the wilderness and about the promised land, it helps us to understand us, I think, a bit. You know, we're, we're kind of, are we we're given that challenge? Are we going to be like the other spies or are we going to be like Joshua and Caleb? It helps us to see that we're not just wandering around dilly-dallying. We do have a job before us. Uh, there is a promised land to take um, and to, to rest in. Um, and so I think that's a really important thing to understand, as I say, for those, for those reasons. So, now, unless anyone wants to stop on anything there. No? I do have one other thing I need to say, actually, before we move on, which is, and you see this later on in Hebrews as well, so we will talk about this later, but the same way we said at the beginning and last time that the promise given to Abraham was the whole earth, Hebrews goes on to make the point that the new creation, the creation that God is renewing, which we haven't got to yet, we'll get to that when we talk about the prophets, that is the rest that God ultimately was putting on offer. Okay, so that's the promised land that we long to enter into. Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that later. So for now, let's, that's kind of just a general paradigm, if you like, of this Pentateuch story. So let's kind of get into the nitty-gritty. Um, doesn't everyone love the Mosaic Law? Has anyone here ever spent like a, an hour in Leviticus and gone, Lord, I'm just so grateful for this book? We should. <laughs> Let's spend some time looking at some of the law of Moses. I think we'll... Oh, it is quarter past eight. I was going to say, let's take a break at quarter past eight. Well, that's good, because we're about to change segments. So why don't we just take five minutes? um, Toilet, coffee, chat, whatever you want. But five minutes, we'll come back at 20 past. Righty-ho. Let us crack on. Okay. So, the Mosaic Law, don't we love it? So, what is the end goal of the Law of Moses? Or even is there an end goal to the Law of Moses? So, 
feel free to check out the verses I've put on the handout, Roman 10.4. Actually, does anyone here have an ESV? ESV over there. Does anyone, and, and I assume most people here have an NIV? Can, can someone read Romans 10.4 for everyone in the NIV, and then whoever has an ESV, can you just read it immediately after? Romans 10.4. NIV first, then ESV. Oh, that's ESV, isn't it? Can we have the NIV? Go on. Go on, Joseph. Right, okay. So notice the NIV says Christ is the culmination of the law, whereas the ESV has the more literal but maybe not more accurate, Christ is the end of the law. So we've talked about this little word telos. So telos can mean the end of something. The telos of the line on a train line, for instance, would mean you're at the final stop. Whereas the, the telos of um, parenting, for instance, is about raising um, healthy, happy, well-nurtured children. That's the purpose, the end goal. So in Romans 10.4, when it says that Jesus is the telos of the law, the NIV is interpreting that to mean he is the culmination. He's what everything looked to. Some translations will treat it as it means because of Christ, the law is just no more. Uh, So the ESV maintains a more literal reading, but the problem with literal is it can be more open to interpretation, whereas at least the NIV has kind of chosen chosen which one it's going for and sticking with it. So just consider that, and then look at Hebrews 10.1, and then we'll just come back. And what is the end goal of the law of Moses? So just have a couple of minutes, and then just shout out what you think. Not just on those verses. It can be anything. To enter his rest. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just what we looked at in Hebrews 3 and 4, isn't it? That, that is one of the purposes of the law of Moses, to, for God's people to enter his rest. Anything else? Yes. Yes, I mean, that, that's perfect. So that the, one of the purposes, one of the end goals of the law is for people to realize they need a savior. So, I mean, these, these are good. Obviously, there's lots of things we could bring out. But So just to bring some of these in, um, one of the things that the law is, the purposes of it, is as we saw, is Christ. Romans 10.4 says that. What we do with that verse is another issue, but at least what we can all agree on and all translations agree on is Christ is the purpose of it. Hebrews 10.1 says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. So one of the things it's doing is it's showing us that more is on the way. Now, Hebrews goes on to uh, unpack the fact. So in Hebrews 10.1, it says, For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And it says that in the context of its pointing to the good things to come. In other words... As the priest offers sacrifices again and again and again, and the people do the same ceremonies year after year, and their consciences still aren't dealt with, and the issue of sin is still not dealt with, one of the points that the law is making is, one day it will be. Right? This is, this is pointing forward to that day. So pointing forward to Christ. Uh, another one of the kind of end goals, I mean, this is a huge thing in the law. God comes to dwell with his people. Where does God dwell with his people before they leave Egypt and build the tabernacle? He doesn't. 
I mean, Moses meets with him on Sinai, which is kind of a one-off. God was there in the garden with them, but since the garden, God is kind of, if you, not in a sense that God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, but he's been distant from his people in that sense. And now he's come to dwell in the midst of them, and, and notice that the tabernacle is in the middle of the camp. In other words, God is right there in the midst with his people. So one of the, the purposes of the law is to teach God has come to dwell with his people. So, that's kind of like the law in, in macro perspective, but I, I want to dig into it a bit more than that because I think that there's also some kind of, uh, how do I put this, conditional end goals of the law. So, notice that this section is called blessings and curses. So, eschatology is about how this is going to end. And in the law, there's kind of two options. You know, you get those, uh, those books where say the knight's going on a quest to find the treasure or something, and which page you decide to go to will determine the ending of that book. I suppose nowadays the equivalent is video games that do the same thing, but, but back in my day... Um, <laughs> um, and I think in the, in the same way, and I will see how in a minute, the law kind of has this thing of there are, there are two endings on offer here. There's two eschatologies, and we'll see how it uh, goes. But one of the, the, the telosses, the end goals of the law, is for the nations to know God. So the law itself, Deuteronomy 4, 6 to 8. By the way, just to explain the little numbers under there, this passage, I think, is really important for understanding the law in its context. I think one of the things that's typical in churches today can kind of be like, oh, thank goodness we don't have to deal with the law anymore. And I think that that's not really something that honors how the Bible talks about it. So this passage is really important. The way I always remember it is 2468. So Deuteronomy means second law, second giving of the law. So two, and then chapter four, verses six to eight, 2468, okay? Anyway, in Deuteronomy four, verses six to eight, we read, actually, could someone read out those, those verses for us, those three verses? Great, thanks, Henny. So one of the purposes of the law is that it will lead to a day where the other nations look at Israel and say, my goodness, what an amazing law you have. What an amazing God you have that dwells so near to you. So one of the purposes of the law is to be outward facing so that all the other nations are looking at Israel and seeing there is something distinct about these guys. So the law is intrinsically outward looking. I think we have a tendency to think that the law is, is all about separating from the nations and just being little old Israel in the corner. And actually, I think it's doing the exact opposite. Israel are to be distinct in order to stand out so that the nations look at them. So it's, it's an outward looking. One of the purposes of the law is for all the nations to see something. Now, bear in mind, Abraham promise. All the nations of the world are going to be promised through Abraham's family. So this isn't, shouldn't be surprising. I'm going to do another one of these later, but I think it's necessary to do a little excursus here and talk about the fact that uh, when we talk about Israel relating to the other nations, I think it's an important point to make that when we talk about Israel in the Old Testament, we sometimes think of it as purely like an ethnic thing. So Israel are one people, they're one family group, and everyone around them is other family groups. And I think the, the point I want to make, and it's it will come up later as we get into the New Testament, is that to be Israel has never been a primarily ethnic thing. So, in the law, 
In fact, earlier than the law, in Genesis 17, when God gives the, circum- the sign of circumcision, he says, give this to, uh, you're to take it, Abraham, your sons are to take it, and all the foreigners who dwell with you are to take it. They're to be marked as my people. In Exodus 12, when it gives the Passover commands, it says, no foreigner is to eat from this. But if that foreigner is circumcised and joins the people, they are welcome to join as any other member. In other words, people can become Israelites. Right, So it's not just an ethnic thing. People are welcome to join. So when we think about this whole notion of others looking in and, and seeing something is wonderful about these people is that they weren't just supposed to stand and watch. They were supposed to join. So Israel's borders just naturally expand from people joining in and, and people sharing the Passover together and so on and so forth. And, and we see this in the Bible. You think about some of the Gentiles that joined Israel and became Israelites, like Ruth, for instance. And in Matthew 1, we have the genealogy. Notice that Matthew includes all the Gentiles who joined into Israel and were significant in the family tree. King David, the king of kings in Israel, uh, has two Gentiles in his um, genealogy. So Israel is not about being just an ethnic people. You don't have to be a literal descendant of Abraham to be a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham. But that was just a little excursus, I think. Um, so, it's outward looking. The people are supposed to come and join it. That's one of the end goals of the law. The law is supposed to get to a point where people are looking and joining and the world is being transformed just like God promised Abraham. So that's one thing. Now we're going to look at the, the blessings and the curses found in Deuteronomy. Now, d- just to clarify, do we want to slow down? Do we want to talk about anything while we're here? Just give you a moment. I realize that we're kind of racing through. Be brave. Okay. I just don't want anyone getting left behind. Um, ah, I forgot to say something that's on your handout, actually. How does this relate to the call to be a kingdom of priests? So we talked about Israel interceding for the nations around her. So being the one who is being a priest to all those other nations so that those nations come to know God. So again, this just comes back to that whole notion that the purpose of the law is for the world to be transformed. Okay. Sticking in Deuteronomy, let's turn to Deuteronomy 28. Really interesting thing about Deuteronomy 28. So this is known as the kind of the blessing and curses chapter. So you know how today in the USA, when a new president is sworn in, they lay their hand on a Bible? When that ceremony began with George Washington, that wasn't just a closed Bible that they laid their hand on. It was Deuteronomy 28. So the president was swearing to be faithful to what this passage includes. I think it's very symbolic that the Bible is now closed. So let's just read through um, those verses there. Now, again, own time. We've got no rush. We've got plenty of time. So let's give it 10 minutes. Um, If you want to go into the curses section as well, you are welcome to. We will dip into there a bit later. But just uh, just think about this question of what kind of things does God blessing on his people uh, achieve? What does it look like if Israel meet this telos, this eschatology of the Mosaic law? Right, folks, can we start to round off?
Finish your sentences by all means. Okay. So, what does it look like? What does God's blessings, or, or rather, what does the people's faithfulness and God's blessing in turn look like for the people? Do you want to just chuck out a few things that the passage says? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the kind of creational fertility, I've called it. There's this, an abundance of, uh, of things to be enjoyed. Yeah. Yes. There's a kind of protection and strength given to the people. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All nations seeing and being afraid. And in time of that, I mean, I've put it there. I mean, I love the way that it phrases this, that you will be the head. This is in verse 13. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. So again, notice in this, in that verse, that this is always focusing on Israel as it sits among the nations. The Lord never for a moment considers Israel as though they just, they're just kind of off in their own corner of the world. They are always interacting. But the question is, are you going to stand out from the nations or are you going to be absorbed into them? So that, that's the big thing. And then, yeah. So I think this looks kind of like Eden restored. I mean, look at the way that it describes it, where it says, The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flock. It talks about the trees bearing well. It talks about the, uh, the sky that opened the heavens so that the storehouse of his bounty to send rain on the land in season to bless all the work of your hands. It's kind of like Eden restored. So one eschatological outcome for Israel is uh, the garden is back and better. And you can carry on that job that Adam had of stretching that garden out further and further. So it kind of gets Israel back on track. That's, that's, that sounds pretty good. That's like a pretty good eschatology. So the, the law of Moses has, as one of its kind of optional eschatologies, the restoration of creation. that starts in this little place in the Middle East that we call Palestine, and it's going to grow out, and the world is going to be transformed. Now, before we talk about the curses, I just, really quick, I haven't even got a slide for it. Actually, I do have a slide for it. I want to look at a little, a little point to make about the prosperity gospel. Because this is one of the passages that prosperity gospel preachers love to talk about. Now, I want to make a comment before I talk about this. I'm going to try not to get too impassioned. I absolutely loathe the prosperity gospel. I, it angers me that there are people, charlatans, who use their money and influence and wealth and the Bible to fleece widows, vulnerable people, to say, give me a bit of money and then you'll get your miracle or whatever. I absolutely detest it. But from a detached passion and kind of the uh, stepping back from the massive immorality that exists, I just want to say, theologically, what's the error in their theology? Are they not right in saying that if you're the most faithful Christian on your road, you'll have the nicest car. And if they say, well, look at Jude 20, 28. Isn't that what it says? Are they doing that right? So I just want to ask the question, where is their error? 
So I think, the, yeah, definitely the motive, but I think theologically as well. So maybe you don't agree with me, but I think generally we tend to say something like this. What they get wrong is God doesn't offer us material blessings in the New Testament. He offers us spiritual blessings. So material things are in the Old Testament all the time, not in the New. And I think there's, there's a couple of problems with that. One being that how do you detach them? Right? So when someone gets healed, for instance, is that a spiritual blessing or a material blessing? When you are welcome to come to the table and drink bread and wine and you're reminded that, that you, know, you are proclaiming the Lord's death together as a body, is that a spiritual blessing or is it a material blessing? When people in the church who are in need have that need met, is it material or is it spiritual? When you are raised from the dead to stand in God's presence, to worship him forever and ever, is that spiritual or is it material? So I don't think that that kind of dichotomy works very well. For some things, maybe. So I think, you know, maybe spiritual breakthrough. But no, actually, I'm going to correct myself. Even then, if someone's been struggling with kind of carrying shame for years and years and years, and then suddenly that's dealt with, that's still materially blessed them. So is that the, the solution? Well, I don't think it's a very good one. I think the, the more important thing is to look at the fact that this is being spoken to God's people as a body. It's not you there, Mr. Israelite. If you do all these things, then your house is going to be the best. This is you, people of God. If you are faithful, then the Lord is going to bless you and multiply you. You See the distinction there? And, and I think it's a really big one. The body... The corporate body are blessed and made something by God, not just the really good individuals amongst it. And I think that corporate kind of you are connected to the wider body is very unpopular in today's thinking, but it comes out all the time in the Bible. There were plenty of good, faithful Israelites who were carried off into Babylon, for instance. And there are plenty of, uh, how should we put it, external Christians who have benefited in, in church history from, say, revival or the church being massively blessed or whatever. There's a sense in which who you belong to is more important in a sense than just kind of who you are for a lot of these things. Now, there's other things where that's the opposite. Um, but the point there is that this is being offered to Israel as a corporate body. So, I, as I say, it's just a little excursus and we can, you know, talk about it again another time. But, Yeah. So, let's get back on track. Let's talk about the, the curses. Now, this is a very long section. Did anyone read all of it? Yeah. Significantly longer than the blessings. But notice that everything in the blessings section kind of gets inverted. Uh, I mean, literally word for word. Verse 3, you'll be blessed in the city and, cursed and blessed in the country. Verse 16, you'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Verse, four, uh, verse 5, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. Verse 17, your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. So on and so forth. So there's an inversion. And so there's kind of famine, sterility, pestilence um, that come in. And that's, that's come out in verse 17 and 18, verse 21, 22, verse 38 to 42. Um, exiled among the nations. I mean, look at verse 36 and 37. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror, a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. So, 
they, um, yeah, is that question of are you going to stand out among the nations or be absorbed amongst them? Uh, everything they sow is going to get destroyed. Um, and verse 43 and 44, um, they'll be overtaken. The foreigners who reside among you, now bear in mind, the foreigners who reside among you, that phrase comes up all the time in the law, and it's always let them participate. Let them join in the life of Israel. Bless them. Be with them. Let them experience these things. You know, eventually we hope they'll come and join in the Passover. Except this time it says, they will rise above you higher and higher, and you will sink lower and lower. They will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head. You will be the tail. So there's that inversion there. Now, just as we kind of come into to, to finish, is there's these two eschatologies le- laid out for Israel, which is what Moses himself says. So, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, uh, it says, Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven, so you will have to ask who will ascend into heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim to us so that we may obey it. Verse 14. No, the word is very near to you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may obey it. Verse 15, listen to this. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Two eschatologies. Now, if we know the Bible, which route do they take? The right. They turn right. But it doesn't go right. It goes wrong. Yeah, we find through the history of Israel that they, there's some signs of progress. But almost immediately as you finish the um, Joshua, so as I said earlier, they, they finish Joshua, they, they get into the land, and then Judges, everything goes wrong. And in Judges, you have this pattern where things go wrong, and then a, a judge comes, and things go right, and then things go wrong, and then it just gets worse, and so it kind of spirals upwards. And I... If you read Judges, the very last story in it is horrible. I hate it. I really, really hate it. And a very quick overview. Um, A woman is killed by violent sexual abuse. And the husband of that woman takes her body, chops her limbs up, and sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel. And essentially makes the point, what has happened to us? And just the last comment on that story made by the author is, in those days there was no king over Israel. So it's kind of seeing Israel at the lowest, waiting for the day when the king comes. And it starts to look like things are going up. You know, Saul comes and then he falls. And then David comes. And then Solomon comes. It seems to be even higher. And then from Solomon onwards, it's just a story of decline. And when you get to Second Kings, and it talks about first and northern kingdom are taken off into exile, and they're completely destroyed. It talks about it in end-of-the-world language. Why? Because it's eschatological. That's the end of the tribes. And then when Judah is taken off into Babylon, again, it's spoken about in end-of-the-world language, because that is the eschatology that they chose. So the Old Testament really is kind of a um, depressing story. And it kind of comes from this eschatology of Israel, not to say that there isn't lots of hope along the way. Um, but, uh, I mean, obviously, the, does anyone know, by the way, does anyone know what the very last book of the Old Testament is in the Jewish ordering of the books? So Jews in Jesus' day, for instance, how would, what would be the last book they get to? 
very last book in the Tanakh is Second um, Chronicles. And the very ending of Second Chronicles is as they are there in exile, the, the decree is made that they can go home. And the very last word, the word that the Old Testament lands on is, if anyone wishes to serve their God, let them go up. In other words, it kind of ends on this kind of bustling hope of things are about to go up. And so obviously, you know, as, as the first Christians, you think about Matthew, for instance, when he comes to sit down and write his gospel, he, he just goes back and does the story of the Old Testament. And it's like, oh man, it's all coming. So anyway, I'm, I'm jumping in way ahead of myself. But just to make the point that as you read the historical books of the Bible, you find that this eschatology that Moses lays out is exactly what happens. So we'll pick that up again uh, next time. Uh, unless there's any... Well, I appreciate it, Henny, but before, it, <laughs> if you so desire, um, anything we want to talk about, any questions, any comments, let's, let's, let's talk about them. Otherwise, I'll have to shine my laser around at people. Thing is, Mike, you always come up with me, up to me for a question afterwards. Yes, Joyce. Well, I mean, you've, you've got a lot more uh, experience of human nature than I do, but uh, I think we both know that that is so true. You know, whenever you give someone... Whenever, <laughs> whenever an expert uh, says something, there'll always be some person who goes, oh, I know better than that. And I completely put myself in that camp. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Anything else? Hmm. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. Yeah. So. You saying that, Debbie, actually reminds me of, of, of a couple of things I was going to say, which aren't exactly related to that, but it does um, go back to something, which was... Um, so one of the things to say is that in former years, Christians were very happy to take Deuteronomy 28 and say, guys, we've got to do something about this. So William Wilberforce, when you read about William Wilberforce dealing with the uh, issue of slavery in the UK, he was like, read Deuteronomy 28. This is only going to be good for us. If we do something that honors God, if we put aside this great evil and put God first, then this is going to be good. And the day that uh, slavery was banned, there's this uh, sermon that Wilberforce gave where he basically says, you watch, this country is going to be blessed. And was it? Yes. Biggest economic boom Britain had ever seen at that point. Now, I think we can be cynical and say, well, that was just kind of a coincidence, but, you know... He didn't think so. I don't think so. And the other point I was going to say with that, when I'm definitely jumping ahead, because when we talk about this in a few years, a 
few years' time, a few sessions' time. Um, Joshua and Caleb, they're the ones who are held up as the heroes of faith that we've got to be like. So that the, the job is not to agree and say, oh, well, the job is too big. You know, the, this promise that God made to Abraham to, to see the world blessed and see the, the kingdom of God come, it's too big. And we say, yeah, it, it is too big. But if God's promised us, it's going to happen. So, you know, let's get involved. Anyway, uh, unless there's any other burning questions, let me... Perfect timing. <laughs> Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us uh, wisdom, that you've called us to be distinct in this world, not that we might escape from the world, but that the world might be saved through you. And Lord, we do pray that we would be like Caleb and Joshua that we wouldn't see the dangers and put our swords back in our sheaths, but see the dangers and sharpen them. So Lord, we pray that you do bring about these promises that you have made to us and through Christ. Help us to not be like the Israel who hears and ignores, but to be joined to the true and faithful Israel, Jesus himself, who heard the word of the Lord and obeyed. Lord, more than anything, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Cheers, guys.